from Northern California. I think we're going to be finishing this book today, The Growing Pains, The Autobiography of Emily Carr. The chapter starts on page 325, and I think the chapter, the book ends, let's just see, at 338. So I'm going to try to do it all in one shot here. This chapter is called 70th Birthday and a Kiss for Canada. Claywick made her first appearance a few days before I was 70. Victoria was astonished at her. Victoria had never approved of my style in painting. When my painting was accepted in the East, a few Westerners tolerated it. A smaller number found they actually liked it. Claywick and a year later the book of small the book of small Victorians took straight to their hearts and loved even before the favorable Eastern reviews appeared. Claywick got wonderful press reviews right across Canada. Letters, phone calls came from everywhere. People were not only warm but enthusiastic. I was staggered. My editor wrote a foreword for Claywick. He was also asked by Saturday night of Toronto to write two articles, one on my work, one on me. Following the publication of Claywick, these appeared in two consecutive issues. I showed I showed this grand says I E Y E interesting. Hmm. I showed the script of them to me before I before sending it east. <sighs> um that kind of bothers me, but I'm not sure what that means. Anyway, it's might might be a typo, who knows? Uh, I wriggled with embarrassment. Those things could not be about me and my work. It was so strange a hearing for my ears. Out west, they had slanged, ridiculed my painting. I had just finished reading the two articles when Lauren Harris came to see me. He too had written a beautiful review of Claywick for the Canadian Forum. I showed him Ira. Oh, so maybe it was Ira. Ira. I showed him Ira Dilworth's articles and told him how I felt about the whole matter. This was his answer. Keep your nose from where it does not belong. We painters and writers have our own work to do. Good. Let us do it. The critic has his work to do. That is his business, not ours. I put the critics and their reviews clean out of my head. When reviews came, praise after praise from all over Canada, some from England too, the Oxford University Press had their head office there. I was very, I was just very pleased, read them to my blind sister who wanted to hear, put them away and thought no more about them. I had letters from such different kinds of people, from university prof- professors, very kind about the way I used English in my writing from lumbermen and fishermen who said, it is our west coast, dense, rugged, and lavishly watered with mist and rain, from children who said, we just love Claywick. Even two missionaries who had worked among the Indians on the west coast 
wrote liking the book. She was accepted by libraries and reading clubs and was the subject of book reviews over the radio. The Victoria branch of the University Women's Club did me the honor of inviting me to be an honorary member of their branch. I was so astounded, I did not quite know how to act. I had always maintained that unearned honors were stupid shams. Look how hard real members work to earn their membership. Why should I, never have, never having even squeaked through high school, be honored by a university club membership? Half of me said, I can't. The other half said, but I would be very proud. So I took, thanked, so I took, thanked and am. That's weird. It doesn't make sense either. <laughs> a few days before my 70th birthday. A few days before my 7th... Sorry, I have distraction outside my window here with a dog that's going poop in my yard. We'll see if this owner is going to pick it up. Sorry, that's not really nice of me to be talking about. But this lady lets her dog poop everywhere. Anyway... A few days before my a few days before my 70th birthday, a member of the University Women's Club telephoned me. Congratulations on Claywick. She said our club would like to honor you and Claywick by having a little tea party for you. Are you well enough? We know how ill you've been. And by the way, have you not a birthday part a birthday coming pretty soon? I, wel- I replied that I had not been out since my illness, but that I could. I thought I could manage it, that it was very kind of them, and that the following Saturday was my 70th birthday. Then, that is the day we will set for the party, she said. I am lending my home for it. Some of the club ladies will call for you. I imagined it would be a gathering of perhaps six, at most, a dozen of the club members. On Saturday, I was dressed and waiting for when in walked I. I guess it is I. I don't know who this I is. Maybe I missed something. E-Y-E. E? E? Or yay? A? <laughs> I'm going to pronounce it I. Ready, he asked. I've come to take you to the party. The University Women's Tea Party? I'm expecting them to pick me up. They promised, so I can't go with you. But how did you know there was a party? I am invited. Furthermore, I'm going to read out of Claywick. It's a big affair, men men as well as women coming to honor you and Claywick. Oh, I said, I thought it was only half a dozen ladies and a cup of tea. It's going to be mammoth, your townspeople, as many as the house will hold. Don't get scared. Will there be speeches? I should say so. Will I have to reply? I do not think it will be expected of you. They know you have been ill. It would be very ungracious to say nothing at all. They have been so kind to me and to the book. I'll scribble a few words, and if, as so often happens, my voice goes, will you read them for me? I? Oh, I am so glad you are going to be there. I'm frightened. Don't worry, you'll be all right. I scratched a few words on an envelope and and clapped it in my spectacle case. (laughs) Then... The ladies came for my sister and me. 
Our hostess, Mrs. Young, had a big house, large rooms. When I saw them packed with people, I dropped into the first chair inside the front door and wilted. Mrs. Young came and stood beside me protectingly so that people would not know I had come. After a few moments, I got up and took her arm. I'm ready. She led me into the drawing room and sat me on a pink sofa under a stand lamp. It had come. It had commenced to blow and snow outside. Inside all was cozy. My sister was on the other sofa across the room and Mrs. Young saw that she had people about her and she knew she knew because my sister is shy and nearly blind. She looked happy and I made up my mind. I was going to enjoy my party to the full. The Reverend T. Londy, Mrs. Young said, will open the occasion with a short invocation. The Reverend offered a short prayer. I was glad Mrs. Young had invited God to my party. <laughs> then the Master of Ceremonies came forward, a sheaf of open letters in his hand, letters of congratulations from Victoria's citizens and from the various organizations in the city, good wishes for my birthday and for Claywick. A, ma a mailbox had been placed beside my sofa, and I had wondered why. Now I saw that many of the guests carried envelopes. The first letter read was from the Lieutenant Governor, regretting he was not able to be present, but sending best wishes. Then came letters from the Mayor and Aldermen, the University Women's Club, the Canadian Club, the Native Daughters. There was one from, one from the Head of Indian Affairs on behalf of himself and the Coast Indians. After the Master of Ceremonies had read that many allowed... After the Master of Ceremonies had read that many allowed men and women representatives from many other organizations in Victoria stepped up to my mailbox, dropped in their society's letters, and shook hands with me, I stood close beside my sofa. If That's so weird to read I and I. Okay, so I is the guy, I guess. I stood. You? Yay? I don't know how you say his name if it's not I. Sorry for the interruptions. Okay, I stood close beside my sofa. If I did not, if I, now she's talking about herself, if I did not quite know how to act or what to say, he told me. He told me. He was strength and comfort as he had been over editing Claywick. Dear I, he knew the right way and, he made, and it made me feel safe. There were flowers, such beautiful flowers, bouquets, boxes, corsages heaped around my sofa. Someone was always coming up with more. It was like having a beautiful funeral, only being very much alive to enjoy it. Such an easy, comfortable party. I found myself having a very good time. After my right hand had nearly been shaken off, there were speeches. Lovely things were said about Claywick. When everybody had said everything there was to say, came a tiny pause. I whispered to I, is it my turn now? I was shaking with fright. He nodded, but I, but when I went to rise, he put his hand on my shoulder and kept me sat. Sure you can make it? Yes, I replied. My voice rang out strong as a bull's and I was not scared. This is what I said. The envelope is still in my spectacle case. Thank you, everybody, for giving me such a splendid happy birthday party and for being so kind to Claywick. I would rather have the goodwill and kind wishes of my hometown, the people I have lived among all my life, 
been the praise of the whole world. But I did not write Claywick, as the reviewers said long ago when I went to West Coast Village's painting. I was too busy then, painting from dawn till dark. I wrote Claywick one year ago in the hospital. They said I would not be able to go about painting here and there anymore, lugging and tramping. I was sore about it, so I lay there. I relived the villages of Claywick. I was easy. It was easy for my mind to go back to the lovely places after 50 years. They were as fresh in mind as they were then, because while I painted, I had lived them deep. I could sail out of hospital and forget about everything. It was Claywick gave my sick heart courage enough to get better and go home to the easy life the doctor had told me I had to expect now. Bravo! You'll be a public speaker yet, whispered I in my ear. Then he took Claywick in his hands and stood in a central spot to read. When the chairs and sofas were full, people sat round on the floor. I is a beautiful reader. He read Canoe and Juice. Then he talked about several of the longer stories. He commented on Claywick's place in Canadian literature and how privileged I had been to see the Indian people in their own homes and villages. He said by writing Claywick and by painting our woods, I had made a contribution to Canada's art and literature. I stopped speaking and the room was very still, so still I was scared. Perhaps everyone does not like Indians. Then everybody began to chatter at once. Praise, praise, praise for Claywick. I ducked my face into a box of beautiful chrysanthemums and red carnations that the Canadian press had sent me. I did not see or hear I cross the room, but suddenly I was aware of great kindness there before me, and the kindness stooped and kissed my cheek. It was the proudest moment of Claywick's success when, before them all, I stooped and gave me that kiss for Canada. Prouder than, sorry, ugh, prouder far than, far than when Claywick won the Governor General's Medal for the best nonfiction for Canada in 1941. The medal looked to me to be made of the same metal as our old cowbell. <laughs> it is the honor, everyone said, and remember, it is wartime. <laughs> But the kiss for Canada was made of the pure, real stuff, unadulterable. We had fresh refreshments and a huge lighted birthday cake and grapefruit punch for health's, for health's and God save the king. Again, I went to stand. Again, I's hand kept me down. You are tired enough, he said. Come, and took my sister and me home to begin my 71st year. Well, that's funny because that's how I look at my age, too, is whenever I turn a birthday, it's I'm into the next year. I've been there on this planet, you know. For instance, when I turned 60, I was beginning my 61st year. <laughs> and so when you come on to 61, you'll be starting your 62nd year, right? That's how we look at it. That's how I look at it, too. The next chapter is called The Book of Small, and I'll do that on the next episode. I mean, after, right after this, but I'm going to make it separate.
The next chapter is called The Book of Small. One year after the publication of Claywick, The Book of Small appeared. I had wintered in a nursing home. Domestic help and fuel problems were difficult owing to war. I was, dif- I was quite eligible for a nursing home because I was really ill. There I lay waiting and waiting for Small to come from the publisher. The publishing houses were under a heavy war strain, men, presses, material. But at last the book came in a small, in a smart green jacket with a medallion of the little old Small in the center. The book of Small was entirely different from Claywick. She was bigger. Some people liked her more, some less. The first half of Small was a collection of childhood, our childhood stories, the life we lived in the far west where father and mother pioneered and raised their large family. The other half of Small was called A Little Town and a Little Girl. It told told of a little old Victoria before she was even a town. Nearly all the people who lived there were English and they had a good many difficulties to cope with. They had only small china boys as helps, no plumbing, only pumps and wells, no electric light, and no telephone. Sounds like where my FAMO grew up. (laughs) Indians went round the streets selling their beautiful cedar bark baskets or trading them for old clothes or peddling clams or pitchwood tied in bundles for the lighting of fires. The Book of Small told of the slow conservative development of Canada's most western city. My editor was up north on a business trip. He had waited impatiently for the appearance of Small. She came the day he left. He wrote me, I suppose you are being swamped with fan mail. No, Small lay shut in a drawer. I could not bear to look at her. She lay there. Hi, Maggie. Good morning. Are you just now coming to say hello? Sorry for the interruption. I think I need to close the front door as well. It's a little cold still. A rainy day today again. Just went outside to get a little fresh air and left the door open. And now it seems like the town is coming to life. Hello. Would you like to see hello? Let's see where we were. She's going to take her spot. Actually, there's no spot for you up here. No wonder you're like whining to me. Let's move the coffee cup. Let's move this too. You want a little space? Yeah, I've got my paperwork up here this morning. Trying to get ready to sort out some stuff. There you go. There you go. Okay. Where was I? Let's see. Another doggy coming by. My, my editor was up north on a business trip. He had waited impatiently. Okay, so now it's, she says, No, small lay in a drawer, shut in a drawer. I could not bear to look at her. She lay there for three or more weeks. No reviews, no letters came about the book of small. They had followed the appearance of Claywick immediately or within a few days. In bitterness and disappointment, I turned to the wall. My editor came back from the north and camp coming to Victoria dashed into my room. The reviews? The letters? There aren't any. Oh, Ira. She's flopped. Small has flopped dead. 
Or maybe it's Ira instead of I. Oh yeah, that's what it is. How weird how they spelled it E-Y-E before. It's got to be Ira. Okay. <sighs> I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. I should have looked back further. Oh well. Oh, Ira, she's flopped. Small has flopped dead. I'm so shamed. And I cried till I nearly drowned him. He looked perplexed. I can't understand it. Clark and I both thought she was the equal, if not better, than Claywick. She can't have flopped. I hid my shamed face in the pillow. I don't care so much about Small and me, I've, but I've disappointed you and Bill Clark. I howled quarts of tears that had been strangled back for three weeks. The press, too, small, will be a dead loss to them. I wrote Bill last night, and I told him how dreadful I felt. Well, what is it, girl? Come over here. Gosh, the interruptions in this chapter, and this is the shortest chapter ever. Okay. Cheer up. Remember, it's wartime, and everything is (laughs) higgly-piggly. There had been a... That reminds me of Mrs. Piggle Wiggle. You know that story? Oh my gosh, Higgly Piggly. I think she said that in there. Weird. It's probably written around the same time. Anyway, I'll have to look that up. There has been a holdup somewhere. It's a marvel to get book published at, at all these days. All dates are uncertain. Reviewers can't review till they've got the stuff, nor the booksellers still sell till they have the books. He left me cheered, but not convinced. I could only wail. She's flopped. She's flopped. Small's flopped. (laughs) Silly, said my editor. You'll see. Small's all right. Look at the reception. Claywick got small will too. Give her time. Letters came from both Mr. and Mrs. Clark. Kind letters they were. Very upset that I should have thought small had flopped. There had been days, just as I had had said, owing to war conditions. The date, the date of publication had had to be postponed several times. The reviews could not come out until the critics got the books and read them. <laughs> Shipments of books had been late going to the bookstores and libraries. The reviews were just as good, just as complimentary as those of Claywick. I wrote from Vancouver. What did I tell you? All who read small, and everyone is reading her now, love her. Bookstores are sold out of copies. Mr. Clark made his autumn trip to the West. Dear Bill and his little kind, his kind little wife felt so sorry about all the doldrums I had been through because of small. Bill's first question was, is the next book ready? I plan to publish one each year. The script was ready, but we were deeper than ever in war. Hitler is a nuisance from every possible angle. And that is the end of that chapter. I just had a little bit of a side. I'm like, this is exactly how I felt the other day when I was talking on my other audio cast. I haven't published it here in Anchor, but about getting the rejection slip from when you don't make a show or you don't have your pub- your manuscript published, you know, the rejection of things. And then she's all worried. She even had her book published and is worried about the reception. And it's constant in the artistic world, I guess. The uh, constant reliance on what people are saying and thinking about your work, even though when you're doing it, you don't really give a damn. Interesting. All right.
whatever. <laughs> it just makes me feel better because it's like, it's no different. It's just always going to be like this. And I just have to remember not to get sucked down into the hole. Alrighty then. Next chapter, where I think is the last chapter, is called Wild Geese. And it's a short one too, so here it is. Oops, no, I don't need an ad. I don't know what the flag is. Oh, The last chapter, Wild Geese. Spring was young, I, over 70, oh Maggie Koo, with spring all about me, I sat sketching in the clearing that was now given over to the second growth. Baby pines, spruce, hemlock, cedar, and creeping vines, fire reed, bracken. The clearing was off the Happy Valley Road at Metchison, not far from Victoria. Seventy years had maimed me. Loggers had maimed the clearing. I could no longer scramble over great logs, nor break my way through networks of brambles, creep under bushes, and drown myself crown high in lush, young growth. I had to be taken out, set down, and called for, which was a nuisance, but I got immense delight in just being there, in the quiet wood. Nobody for company but spring. Though everything was so still, you were aware of tremendous forces of growth pounding through the clearing, aware of sap gushing in every leaf, of push, 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 the bursting of buds, the creeping of vines, everything expanding every minute, but doing it so subtly, you did not actually see anything happen. In spite of the doctor, I went into the woods to paint a few times more. The longing was too terrific to subdue, and I felt better. I did not go in my old van. (laughs) I did not go in my old van. I'm sorry, I'm laughing because, (laughs) oh my God, she's so like me, or I'm so like her. I'm gonna have a van too. Oh, okay, sorry. I did not go into my old van. It was deteriorating with unuse, so I sold it. I rented a cabin and took a maid along. Well, I wouldn't be able to do that. I rented a cabin and took a maid along to cook and carry for me. The maid was too busy attending to her own work to bother about me. She carried my things out into the woods and came back for them and me later. I was very happy, but the last expedition I overdid and came smash. For a year painting lay dormant but I did some writing one day a friend took my sister driving on the way they planted me in a thick lonely place just off the high road where they took a long ride it was here that I painted the clearing and here the wild geese flew over hark hark high up in the blue above the clearing wild geese migrating honk honk you honk a triangle of noisy black dots. Every Canadian thrills at the sound, the downpour of cackling honks broken, irregular scattering with the sharp monotony of hailstones while the geese sail smooth and high, untroubled by fear of men, for migrating geese fly far, far above man's highest shooting. 
On the ground, a wild goose is a shy, quiet fellow. In the sky, he is noisy and bold. I lifted my face to watch the honking triangle pass across the sky. The day was clear, not dazzle bright. I could look into the face of the sky without blinking. There was one cloud. The geese caught up with the cloud. The leader dove into it. Its His flock followed. For a few seconds, the cow, cloud nestled the geese to her breast, emptying the sky, muffling the honkings, but the company pierced through the cloud. The leader and those few birds that fly in close formation behind him appeared. Then the two long wavering sidelines of singly, singly spaced birds emerged to continue their way sailing, sailing into the north, one glad rush of going, one flock unswervingly following one leader. At that height, each bird appeared no bigger than a small black bead, evenly strung, one goose behind the other, a live necklace flung across the throat of heaven. Wow, isn't that a beautiful paragraph? Let me read that again. I lifted my face to watch the honking triangle pass across the sky. The day was clear, not dazzle bright. I could look into the face of the sky without blinking. There was just one cloud. The geese caught up with the cloud. The leader dove into it. His flock followed. For a few seconds, the cloud nestled the geese to her breast, emptying the sky, muffling the honkings. But the company pierced through the cloud. The leader and those few birds that fly in close formation behind him appeared. Then the two long wavering sidelines of singly spaced birds emerged to continue their way sailing, sailing into the north, one glad rush of going, one flock unswervingly following one leader. At that height, each bird appeared, no bigger than a small black bead, evenly strung one goose behind the other, a live necklace flung across the throat of heaven. The racket passed over the clearing. The sky was still, again still. My eyes came back to the graying stumps amongst which I sat. Young growth had already hidden some. Even the echoes had forgotten how they had shrieked sympathy when the axes bit into the great original forest giants, forgotten the awful crash the groan, the tremble of the ground as each tree fell. Today, the clearing was not sun-dazzled. Rather, it was illumined with spring. Every leaf was as yet only half unfurled and held light and spilled some. Today, at 70, I marveled more at the migration of the geese than I had at the age of seven, when, standing in our cow pasture, Holding father's hand and looking up into the sky, I heard father tell the story of bird migration and only half believed. Today, a new wondering came to me as I watched the flight. What of the old or maimed goose who could not rise and go with the flock? Of course, there was the old, the maimed goose. What of him when the flock, young and vigorous, 
Rose leaving him grounded. Did despair tear his heart? No, old goose would fill the bitter moment, pouring out proud, exultant honks that would weave among the clatter of the migrating flock. When the flock were away, animal-wise, he would nibble here and nibble there, quietly accepting. Old age has me grounded, too. Am I accepting? God, give me the brave, unquestioning trust of the wild goose. No, being humans, we need more trust. Our hopes are stronger than creatures' hopes. Walt Whitman's words come ringing. We but level, li- we but level this lift to pass and continue beyond. And that is the end of Emily Carr's Growing Pains, her autobiography. Wow. I might have to come back and do just a little. Maybe I won't. I don't know. I might have to re-listen to my own words reading this book again someday. It seems to me that she had a lot in there. That last chapter was so wildly poetic. I hope people will read this story or listen to the story. Um, I think she had a lot to offer the world and she was honest about it. That's what I got from her. She was honest about it and simple and just did her work and I think that's what drew me to trying to wanting to read more about her story is after seeing that Vancouver retrospect of hers uh, retrospective of hers in the museum when I was up there this last summer I picked this book up there in the museum yeah uh, maybe it was the title of the book that drew me as well Growing Pains because I think many of us in the creative arts, and whether it be painting or sculpture, photography, or writing poetry, or dance or music, I think we all have that growing pain situation, you know, the struggles of coming to terms with our voices. So. That is the end, and I hope you have enjoyed it. It sure would be nice to hear from folks if they're listening, of what they thought. I seem to get listens on here. I'm not sure if anybody's willing to speak up. I don't have to publish them if you don't choose to. Anyway, it was a good book. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.